Hello, and welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Peter Bell, and we are on Catechism Thursday, Lord's Day number 22. And before we start with this show, if you guys have not yet listened to Monday's podcast with Dr. Stephen Wellum, do yourself a favor, listen to that podcast on the person of Christ. We also have a special giveaway from our good friends at Crossway Publishers. It is a fantastic episode to understand better who Christ is, how his two natures interact, and how a better understanding of him leads us to a better understanding of our salvation and his obedience for us. So let's begin with this episode. We're doing question answers 57 and 58. So we'll start with 57. Question. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Answer. Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. And here's Osinus' exposition of question answer 57. The questions which properly belong to this article of the creed are such as the following. And here are nine. First, is the soul immortal? Second, where is it when separated from the body? Third, what is the resurrection and what the errors which are entertained in regard to it? Fourth, from what does it appear that there certainly will be a future resurrection? Fifth, what kind of bodies will rise in the resurrection? Six, how will it be affected? Seventh, when will it take place? Eighth, by whose purpose and through whom? And ninth, for what purpose will there be a future resurrection? First question, is the soul immortal? <clears throat> the scriptures teach and prove most conclusively that the soul, not only in the body before death, and after the resurrection of the body from the dead, but also during the whole space that intervenes between death and the resurrection, exists, lives, feels, and understands without the body, although the manner of its operations without the body is altogether unknown to us. Second question, where and in what state does the soul remain when separated from the body? The scriptures teach that no fire after death but that the blood of Christ purified our souls in this life from all sin. They also teach that the souls of the faithful, when they die, are not cast into the place of torments, there to be purified by fire, but that they are gathered to Christ in Abraham's bosom, whilst the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, from which there is no way of escape, and where they are now tormented with hellish agonies being at the same time reserved for the most intolerable torments of the eternal fire, which the wrath of God will kindle in the judgment, which Christ will execute at the end of the world. Third question, what is the resurrection and what are the errors which are entertained concerning it? The resurrection then will consist in the restoration of the same body or the bringing together the mass or matter which now constitutes our bodies but which after death is scattered and dissolved in the different elements. It will consist in the reunion of the body, 
with the same soul which it had at first, but which should also be quickened and be made immortal. It consists in the glorification of the elect and the eternal banishment of the wicked from the presence of God. Fourth question, from what does it appear that there will be certainly a future resurrection? And Rosetta says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the God of the living and not the dead. As a quote from scripture. He says also, God promises eternal life to the righteous in respect both to the body and soul. Rewards and punishments extend to the whole man because the whole man has sinned. The mercy of God is perfect in a sense of the whole man and desires that we should be wholly saved. The love and mercy of God towards the righteous is constant and unchangeable, so that what he once wills to do for them out of his fatherly love, that he wills forever. The perfect justice of God requires that the ungodly be punished according to the form under which they sin. Christ is risen, therefore we also shall rise. Because Christ rose, he might raise us. Because Christ is the head, we are his members. The same spirit which dwells in Christ dwells also in us. It is declared that Christ shall also have an everlasting kingdom. Christ is a perfect savior because he has saved and reconciled the whole man to God. Christ is not less able to save than Adam was to destroy. God published his law to man after the fall. The wages of sin is death. Our bodies were made for this end, that the Holy Ghost might forever dwell in them, and that they might be his temples. Fifth question, what kind of bodies shall rise in the resurrection? There will be restored in the resurrection to every soul, not a strange and different body, but its own proper body, that which it here had, and thus shall be crowned with glory, or punished with shame. Finally, as Christ rose with the same body which he had when he died, so shall we also rise with the very body which we now have. Sixth question, how will the resurrection be effected? The resurrection will be accomplished openly and gloriously, and not secretly nor hastily. It will be far different from that which occurred in relation to certain persons when Christ rose from the dead. Seventh question, when will the resurrection take place? The resurrection will take place at the end of the world, in the last day, according as it is said, I will rise him up at the last day. Eighth question, by whose power or through whom will the dead be raised? The resurrection of the dead will be affected by the power of Christ as the mediator. It is the source of great comfort. For the fact that he will not be unmindful of his own flesh and members, but will raise them up to eternal life, for which cause he assumed our nature and redeemed us. Ninth question, for what purpose and to what state will the dead be raised? The ultimate end of the resurrection of the dead is the glory of God, for he will then manifest and exercise his mercy in its highest form in the glorification of the faithful while his justice will be displayed in the damnation of the reprobate. The next end, subordinate to the former, is the salvation and glory of the elect. Question answer 58. 
What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man conceived a blessedness into which to praise God forever. And here's the Sinus's exposition of question answer 58. This article stands at the end of the creed because its perfect fulfillment comes after the rest and because it is the effect of all the other articles. This article, therefore, is the crowning point of our entire salvation in life. These questions will be discussed in connection with the subject. What is eternal life? By whom is it given? To whom is it given? Why is it given? How is it given? When is it given? And lastly, whether and whence we may be assured of it in this life. So the first question, what is everlasting life? And he asks, we must first ask, what is everlasting? And he says, that which is without beginning or end, as God is. That which is without a beginning, which has an end, as the decrees of God. Or that which has a beginning, will have no end, as the angels. And he says, this is the last, it is the last sense that our heavenly life is called everlasting. By which we mean, that whilst it has a beginning, it will have no end. Eternal life is the perfect restoration of the image of God, with eternal joy and delight in God, heavenly glory, and the full fruition of all those good things which are necessary to a state of perfect happiness. In a word, it is the perfect conformity of man with God, consisting in the true and perfect knowledge and love of God, and in the glory both of the soul and body of man. These two things must be considered for a proper idea of what constitutes everlasting life, a union of both our body and soul with God, and a conformity with God, which flows out of this union as an effect from its cause. His second question, by whom is everlasting life given? And he says, God grants eternal life. God the Father, as the author and fountain of all life, grants eternal life through the Son and Holy Spirit. Third question, to whom is eternal life given? Eternal life is given from everlasting to all and only the elect, or such as converted in this life. Faith and repentance are peculiar to the elect, but these constitute the beginning of eternal life. Therefore, eternal life pertains to the elect only. Fourth question, wherefore is eternal life given? Eternal life is not given on account of our works, whether present or foreseen but only out of the free mercy and love of God toward the human race, and from his desire to manifest his mercy in the salvation of the righteous, through the satisfaction of merits of Christ the mediator, imputed unto us through faith, for this end, that God may be eternally praised by us. Fifth question, how is eternal life given? Eternal life is given us through faith, and faith by the doctrine of the gospel and the inward efficacy of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit works in us through the Word, the knowledge of God, and of His will, which knowledge is accompanied with the desire of becoming more and more intimately acquainted with God, and of living according to the requirements of His will. 
through the ministry of the word. Sixth question, when is eternal life given? The beginning of everlasting life is already given in this world, but the consummation of it is reserved for the life to come, which none receive, but in whom it is here begun. Last question, whether and whence may we be assured of everlasting life? He that believes that he does believe, which assurance is based upon these solid arguments. God, who is the author of everlasting life, is unchangeable. The foundation of God standeth sure. Christ has heard in all those things which he asks of the Father. God will not have us to ask of him those things necessary for our salvation conditionally, but positively, because he has promised it. And the ends which with that which has now been spoken concerning this article explains sufficiently what it is to believe the life everlasting, which may be said to include a firm persuasion, one, that after this life, there will be another life in which the church shall be glorified and God praised forever. Two, that I am also a member of this church and shall for this reason be made a partaker of everlasting life. And three, that I also in this life have the beginning of everlasting life. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, Catechism Thursday, Lord's Day number 22. We went through question answer 57 and 58. I am super excited about Saturday's episode of Book Club. We have Dr. Stephen Nichols talking about his brand new biography of Dr. R.C. Sproul, somebody who influenced my life and I'm sure has influenced and will influence your life. So stay tuned. Do not miss this episode. Also with the chance to win a copy of the biography of R.C. Sproul given to us by our good friends at Crossway. And look forward to next Monday with Reverend Todd Bordeaux. He's talking about theology and preaching, how our understanding of the redemptive history, the arc of scripture, how Christ is present in both Old and New Testament affects our preaching and affects our listening as those in the pew. So we hope to see you guys next week on the Goat Grace Gratitude Podcast. Bye. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Mm-hmm.